have on my PowerPoint. I want to kind of give everybody sort of a, a look um, to kind of give yourself geographic perspective here. We're talking here at this point in the book of Acts about Paul's, what we call his first missionary journey. And I thought this might help keep things in perspective. Of course, they'd already left Antioch, went over to the coastal city of Seleucia, sailed over to Salamis, and then this morning's message was there in Paphos on the uh, island of Cyprus. And then they're going to be leaving there and going to the southern region of what is now modern-day Turkey. Back then, we referred to it Asia Minor, and into that region called Pamphylia. And they'll go up to Perga, and eventually up to Antioch, Pisidia. Now, you see double arrows there. That's because as they, they get all the way over to Iconia, Lister, and Derby, then they sort of backtrack and revisit the places as follow-up, and then sail back from Pamphylia back to Antioch to give a report. And then that would bring the conclusion of what we call Paul's first missionary journey. So we're going to pick up in our story at Acts chapter 13, and I'm going to read the passage of Scripture that deals with this section from verses 13 of chapter 13 uh, down to verse 41. And if you're able, let me invite you to stand out of respect for the Word of God. It says, Now when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto him, saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, Give audience. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they, were, they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an high arm, he brought them out of it. And about this time of 40 years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. And after that, he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward they desired a king. And God gave unto them Saul, the son of Sis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. When John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he, but behold, there cometh one after me, whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired Pilate that he should be slain. 
And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up from him, from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And he declared unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto their children, same unto us, their children, and that he hath raised up Jesus again. As it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he has said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid under his fathers and saw corruption. But he, whom God raised up again, saw no corruption. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things, from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest that that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, ye despisers, and wonder, and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. came across an article a while back about the country of Nigeria and how it has a population of over 140 million people, very large, dense population. It's comprised of over 200 ethnic groups and nearly 400 different languages and dialects. With that kind of variegation, uh, unity of purpose and cooperative work is sometimes very difficult. Farming is a substantial part of the economy, but they are naturally troubled with what is called the advancement of the Sahara Desert. Uh, the topography of the land is, is changing, and, and so uh, more and more of the desert is encroaching upon what has been formerly good farmland. And they were despairing over this, you know, especially people that lived on the fringe area there that had been farming and were losing their farmland. And so very graciously, a group of botanists and agriculturalists arrived back in 2009, nearly 11 years ago now, to teach the Nigerians how to address the problems. What did they teach them? Well, they talked about how to control animal grazing so that they're, you know, not completely eating the uh, the vegetation down to the roots, and it can rejuvenate itself. Uh, they also talked about how to regulate deforesting because they would just go in and wipe out all the trees completely in areas, and, of course, that was uh, changing things as well. And also how to add nutrients to the soils for farming so that it, the, uh, the different items that they would plant would get the nourishment that it needed, as well as even advancements in at irrigation of how to get water into these areas. And it was interesting that 
after several years going back and kind of doing follow-up work, to find that these people had such deep appreciation for what had been done for them. These, uh, these botanists, these scientists that went in, and how they were paid, I'm not entirely sure. It didn't go into that. But the Nigerian farmers were just overwhelmed with gratitude. And they are still living off of the benefits of what they have learned from good farming techniques and to help preserve their lands uh, to this very day. Really, the message that those experts brought was a message of salvation, we might say. Saving them from starvation for their people. The story that we read here tonight in the book of Acts is about Paul bringing a message of salvation to, to people that desperately need to hear it. We'll go on later next week into the last part of chapter 13 to, to see all of the response that happens here. Most of what we're looking at tonight is, is the message that Paul preaches to these people. But Paul approached these people that had gathered in the synagogue. And as I alluded to this morning, that was Paul's normal approach. Uh, he was called to, to bring the gospel first to the house of Israel. And so if there was a synagogue, there wasn't always a synagogue in a location where he went. But if there was, then that's where he would go to first. And of course, being recognized by the people that were there. Uh, he was given a welcome audience uh, by the leaders of the synagogue to speak. And of course, these people didn't realize it, but the individuals that were present in this synagogue were being overrun by a spiritual desert of sorts. Uh, they had needs, and here's Paul showing up to try to help them with their needs. He knew, even though they didn't realize it, that he had the truth that could turn their lives around. The climax of Paul's message, I think, is, is found in verse 26 that we read tonight when he says to them, To you the word of this salvation is sent. He's driving it home, making it very personal to his audience right there in that synagogue. Now, this kind of reminds me of when Jesus showed up in a synagogue in the town of Nazareth. And when Jesus spoke in his hometown of Nazareth, he, he preached from a text in the book of Isaiah, chapter 61. He called for that scroll and opened and read it, and, and then he sat down. But here's what he read in Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, in the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Of course, everybody that uh, in the synagogue the day Jesus read this understood that Isaiah wasn't saying this about himself. This was a messianic reference that the anointed one who would come. This is what was, they would say. And Jesus attributes this to himself personally. This is why the people in Nazareth get so upset. They're like, this guy grew up in our hometown. Who does he think he is? And you remember, they got so upset with not accepting him as the actual fulfillment of this text that they tried to drive him out of town and push him over a very high cliff that was unsuccessful. They should have welcomed his message. The people in Nazareth should have cheered and said, 
Praise God, finally, he's come. We didn't recognize him while he was among us, but if, if this is who the Father has for us, then this is exactly what we've been looking for. People don't always welcome, as they should, the message of salvation. We alluded to that this morning. Paul's message for us tonight is both a reminder to us of the wonderful salvation that's been made available to every single one of us. How can you not read through this and realize at the end of it, you just say, Lord, thank you for making a recip- me, me personally, a recipient of your plan of redemption. But also it serves as a template, if we could put it that way, for a good way of approaching the lost with the gospel. So I want to just take uh, from this morning's message and just develop a little bit more of how Paul then goes into it. And we're not given a, a long sermon or even uh, much of a sermon in many other places that Paul goes. A lot of times we're just given the details and the events of what happens when he gets there. But the Holy Spirit has seen fit to give us a little snapshot, if you would, of what he is preaching in this particular synagogue. And for us, it helps us to appreciate the welcome word of salvation. But what do we need to understand as we look at this text? Well, first of all, we need to understand that God graciously works with people. God is exactly that. God is such a gracious God. You have only to look at yourself and say, you know, God, you've been gracious to me. I've, I have probably tested your patience way too many times, and yet you still are gracious. But secondly, we need to understand that God graciously saves his children. And so let's look at both of these items tonight through what Paul has to share in this text. Under the idea of understanding that God graciously works with his people in verses 17 through 25, it is essential, uh, what we see here is, is like a history lesson. Maybe you picked up on that as we're reading through there. It sounds like he's giving us a synopsis of the, of the, the Hebrews, the Jewish people up to that point. Uh, really just kind of hitting the high points and summarizing things. But Paul is not just speaking to Jews because uh, he says, Ye that fear God. And there, and there would be a placement for an audience of people outside of, of those that were born uh, into Judaism to hear in the synagogue. And those that said, yes, I believe in the one true God. Cornelius would have been a good example of someone who was not Jewish, but was a fearer of God. And of course, now that they are way outside of Israel, and they're in the a- land of Asia Minor, Uh, they would have been in the minority, perhaps, of the population of that area. But yet, people would have been proselytizing into the Jewish faith. And so, therefore, Paul is addressing all these people. But what does he emphasize in his message? And I think that's what we need to kind of focus on here, about seeing God's graciousness with people. He first points out how God has a way of selecting people in verses 17 through 19. Literally, the word chose is given to us in these verses. That God chose people, the people that he's intending to work with. The verse begins by speaking how he chose the early patriarchs. He could have picked out anybody. Why did he, why did he choose to make a covenant with Abraham? Well, that's God's will. That's his sovereignty. It's his right to do as he pleases. 
We had a good discussion in Sunday school about, you know, how, how did he come to work with Deborah as one of the judges there and when he was doing this with Barak. And, and part of the answer is, I'm the Lord. I will do as I please. He does not act out according or in discord, I should say, with his will, with his character. But whether they were in bondage, as he talks about in verse 17, whether they were wandering in the wilderness, verse 18, or whether they finally came settled into the land, at all those stages, they were still the chosen people of God. And that's important for us to realize because God never broke his covenant with the people. He never stopped being faithful to them. He never cast them aside, even though they often cast God to the side. God is amazing in his faithfulness to us when we do not deserve it. Moses even later reminds them, the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 14:2, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself, above all the nations that are upon the earth. And again, you know, as I think back to our recent visit to Israel and, and, and being there and not just enjoying the, uh, the archaeological aspects of it, but even seeing what's going on in modern day uh, Israel as far as the government and, and, and the interactions with other world leaders and so forth like that, it is obvious, at least to me and to anyone that reads the Bible, I would think, that God has, in a very unique way, lifted up these people above all the nations in a very specific way of His blessing. You know, there was an aridness about the land, you know, but there was talk about how even the, the desert blossomed when Israel came back as a nation there and God's hand of blessing upon that nation to this very day. You could drive along and see you know, all kinds of amazing, just lush fruit trees and olive trees and all sorts of, I mean, agriculture's huge over there. And you think, wow, you would never imagine agriculture in such a, an arid part of the world. But again, that just seems to be God's hand of purposeful blessing. Why? I have chosen these people and I am going to bless them. You know what? You say, well, that's great for them. What about us? Well, I love what Peter does in his epistle, 1 Peter 2.9. He tells to us, non-Jewish people, people that are not of the seed of Abraham, but uh, we are, as Paul put it, children of Abraham in a spiritual sense because we have been grafted in by the divine work of God. It says in 1 Peter 2.9, you're probably familiar with this verse, but ye he is saying to those that are redeemed, are a chosen generation. And I tell you what, let's just stop and, and think about that. Isn't it a blessing that you and I have been chosen by our Heavenly Father to be part of the family of God? Amen. Not anything great that we did, not by works of righteousness which we have done. It's simply according to His mercy that He saved us. And beyond being chosen, He goes on to elaborate yeah, you know, Israel had the Levites, but guess what? You're also a royal priesthood. And you're a holy nation of believers, a peculiar people. Why? That you should show forth the praises of Him who have called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. You know, it's not just that we bask in these privileges. We have a responsibility 
to show the greatness and the marvelous works of God's grace in our lives. That's why he has chosen us and redeemed us to himself. So God's selection of his people. Then he goes on to talk about God's supervision, uh, supervision of his people in verses 20 through 22. And then he, we get another history lesson here, right where we're in our adult Bible study on Sunday mornings. God begins with the judges, but later he allowed for a king in verse 22, which the people desired, okay? And it, this, again, is the marvel of how, you know, humans work, but God still is sovereignly in control over it. And you later realize, yes, they were wrong in what they wanted of it, but God was still in charge of it, and God used it to his ends. God is never sidestepping humanity, is the idea. God eventually removed the first king, Saul. And then verse 22, he raised up David, who was after his heart. Was David a perfect man? Far from it. Very flawed. Failed over and over again. Our, our men's Bible study yesterday, we we talk quite a bit about that as we examine the psalm of repentance where David just pours out his remorse for what he had done with Bathsheba. But that wasn't his only failing. He failed as a father in many cases. He failed as a king in numbering the people. And yet he did have a heart that was passionate for God. But what we see is not to take pleasure in David or Solomon or anything like that, but to take pleasure in God, to be in awe that God consistently provided leadership. Now, at the best, human leaders were flawed. Kings may have been regal and noble in many respects, but at best, they were very flawed. And all of this was to put a taste or an appetite in people's mouth as, can we not get a better king? And the answer is, oh yes, we have a perfect king. King Jesus, sad thing is that when that king arrived, and he was even labeled as king of the Jews, I don't think Pilate understood exactly all that he was doing when he wrote that superscription above the head of Christ on the cross. But they, they rejected him. Here's your king. Oh, we have no king but Caesar. And what a sad this is. Why? They didn't want supervision. But you know what? People are like sheep. Sheep need a shepherd. There's a wandering spirit. Sheep get into trouble when they're left to their own. Guess what? So do we. We need a king. We need leaders. But we need a, 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 a spiritual monarch, if you would. And that's what Jesus came to be. And then he goes on to talk about God's saving of his people, verses 23 to 25. God raised up a Savior, as he puts it here, which was misunderstood by them because they always looked for a civil liberator. Someone is going to come and get us out from underneath the, the foot of Rome. But what they really needed was a spiritual one, and that's what he came to do. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. In 1 John 4.14, John reminds people, we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, why don't people like to hear that? Well, because if you say, oh, I have a Savior for you, well, that implies what? You have a need. You need rescued. You're not able to take care of yourself. You're vulnerable. 
And that really cuts to the quick of a person's pride, doesn't it? People don't want to see themselves as vulnerable. They aren't willing to embrace their vulnerabilities, spiritually speaking. But it is when we become contrite and humble before God and admit our vulnerability spiritually and say, you know what? I need saving by Christ. People rejoice in having a Savior when they really grasp their desperate need for being rescued. And this is the kind of people that God comes to work with. There will always be those that reject, but praise God, there are those that say, yes, that's exactly what I need. But then what about the understanding of how God does graciously save his children? He said, I've, I've, I've come that you can be saved. And this is what is seen in verses 26 through 41. And we see, first of all, his crucifixion was planned. We actually understand that this was something that was done before God laid the foundations of the world. The Lamb of God was slain ere before man ever actually committed the first sin. But God in his sovereign eye could see that it was going to be a need. The sacrifice of Christ was promised and prophesied in the scriptures. And the course of events that they had fulfilled in verses 27 and 29. Just glance back there. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath day. If they had just been alert to what was actually being said, they realized this is the truth. This is what we've been looking for. But those series of events that happen in that first century, the early part of it with Christ, they have fulfilled them in condemning them. Those Jewish people were carrying out what the prophets foretold would happen. Not, not to be on the side that you would want to be on, because to do that, you are violating what God wants you to do while you're carrying out His will all at the same time. You know, that happens. That's the amazingness of God's sovereign will. God doesn't condone sin. God doesn't condone the actions of Satan. God doesn't condone the disobedience of humanity. And yet God can take even the, the wrath of men to praise him. As it was testified by Joseph, he got this with his brothers. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And it was all part of God's sovereign plan. And so it was in the days of Jesus Christ. Who's responsible for the death of Jesus? Well, if we remember back to Acts 2, when Peter stood up at the day of Pentecost, he looks out at the audience of Jewish people that are standing there, that are gathered from all over for the day of Feast of Pentecost. And he says very pointedly, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, Basically telling him, you know, you're inexcusable. You saw all this. You saw his miracles. As ye yourselves also know, if you're really honest about it, you know that this was the case. And then he says in verse 23, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Oh, okay. So it's the Father. He was delivered over to Pilate. It was the work of the Heavenly Father and his providence that brought this about. So who's responsible for the death of Christ? We would say, based on that, the Father's responsible. It was the Father's plan. Jesus was yielded to it. 
That was the discussion in the Garden of Gethsemane. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus even knew it was the Father's plan. But Peter doesn't stop there with talking about who's responsible for the crucifixion of Christ. He says, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So is the Father responsible for the death of Jesus Christ? The answer is yes. Are the people of Israel responsible for the death of Christ? And the answer is yes. And so here is the, the wonderful way that we see man cannot by his disobedient actions thwart the plans of God. God's will will be done. God's sovereignty stands. His plan for man's redemption as it was laid out from the beginning of time unfurled just as God the Father saw fit that it was. Does man get a pass for his activity in, in handing over Christ to the Romans to be crucified? No. They were wicked in what they did, and they will be judged accordingly for that action. But they became pawns in the hands of the sovereign God. We need to understand how God graciously saves His children in doing so. God, Jesus' crucifixion was a planned event. His resurrection was a proclaimed event, verses 30 through 37. And this is the hope. After you come to the, the crucifixion, the, the summation that the Father accepts what Jesus did on the cross is because of the empty tomb. And so look at verse 32 there. It says, And we declare unto you glad tidings. Here's the good news. How that the promise which was made unto the fathers, and he goes on to say in verse 33, God hath fulfilled the same unto their children, and that he hath raised up Jesus again. The tomb is not still filled with the the body of Christ. There's an empty grave to show the power that Jesus has over sin and death. And that's the kind of Savior we need. He saw no corruption, which emphasizes the power to give, verse 34, the sure mercies of David. Now, what's that talking about? The sure mercies of David. Well, it's a reference to what we call the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant given first in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. God making a covenant, not a contract, but a covenant, saying, David, this is what I'm going to do for you. You know, a contract is between two parties. If one violates it, the contract can be broken. But a covenant doesn't work that way. Man's often broken his side of the covenant, but you know what? God says it's a, it's a covenant. I'm still... You know, you may not be faithful, I remain faithful still. When God said, I'm going to make sure, and here's what the promise was in 2 Samuel 7, 16. Thy throne shall be established forever. What a promise to make to David. Was that because David was just such an amazing man? No, because God sovereignly and His graciousness said, I'm going to visit this grace upon you. I'm going to do this. for. I know you're going to... Plan the, the murder of Uriah. I, I know that you're going to be a moral with Bathsheba. I know that you're going to stop trusting me and number the people. I, I know all these things about you before you ever even do them, David. But I'm making a covenant with you because it pleases me to do so. To show I am faithful even when man is not faithful. There is a period of dark monarchs that proceed after David, really. Solomon has a lot of luster to him, but really, spiritually speaking, 
When you read through Ecclesiastes, you think, you know, for a wise man that was endowed with all that wisdom, it would have been better if he didn't have to do all that, if he hadn't done all that experimenting to say, yeah, I tried all these things and it was vain, tried this and it was vain, tried this and it was vain. You know, well, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. You know, fear God, serve him. What? Shouldn't you have known that from the beginning and just lived a righteous life? And, and he multiplied wives. No one had more wives and concubines, a thousand women to his name. And yet, it just goes downhill from there until Shiloh comes. Jesus, king, he's in the line of David twice over. And so it's a reminder to us that that, that, that tomb is empty because King Jesus is still king. And he's coming back to set up his reign even on this earth. Jesus is the last in the Davidic line. He will never die. He will never surrender his scepter. His, his resurrection proclaims the fact that he will set up a monarchy like this world has never known. It's going to be exciting to see what this world will be like when you have a perfect king. Amen? But then thirdly, we see his justification was perfect. Verses 38 through 41. Paul's just really, you know, getting into his preaching at this point. Be it known unto you, therefore. I get this and understand this. That you can have forgiveness of sins. There's different ways to describe this. But what he's talking about here is, hey, realize you do wrong every day. And again, uh, in, our, in our, our meeting yesterday, one of our men brought up an encounter they had had with a lady that professed to be a Christian and said, yep, ever since I became a Christian, I have never sinned again. <laughs> and I've, I have met a couple people like that that make that kind of statement. And, and the only thing after talking with them about it, and I don't know about this particular person, is that they, they have a different definition of what sin is. And we, and we really understand sin, and this is, this is why the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. Jesus came to fulfill it. But Paul talked about how, you know, I never knew what sin was until the law came in. You know, it's the presence of the pointedness of Scripture that says, Thou shalt not do this, and thou shalt not do that. And then Jesus comes along and says, Oh, by the way, it's not just about what you do on the outside, it's about what's going on on the inside as well. You're probably sinning way before your, your hands and feet and mouth get in action. You can think. You know, you can be just laying in bed and think, Wow, I haven't even put, my feet haven't even hit the floor and already I've sinned. And it's when we really appreciate that that is the definition of sin that God is using. And to realize, even as His child, even with the presence of the Holy Spirit, even with all the equipping of Scripture, I still can't live a sinless life. And so praise God that He has declared me righteous. He has justified me. Verse 39 says this, By Him all that believe are justified from what? All things. Wow, what a great word to underline and highlight and circle in your Bible. All things. There's, there's not an infraction that you've ever made 
from the time, and you don't even remember it. Did, did you probably sin when you were six and seven things? And, and the Father knows them all. He understands them all. And He chooses to put them away. Why? Because He said, Jesus shed His blood. And I accept His payment in respect of your sins for everything that you have done, everything that you're currently doing. And you know what? Things that you haven't even done yet. I know they're going to happen. You don't even know they're going to happen. Ways you're going to disappoint me. It's kind of like when Jesus was talking to Peter. Oh, Lord, I won't deny you. Jesus already knew it was going to happen. You know, as we pray to God, you realize, you know, we better be careful about what we tout. Oh, Lord, you know, I've gotten right with you, and I'm never going to go back and do this again, you know. God already knows how we're going to fail him how we're going to step away from what we have promised to do. Justification is an amazing truth. And that's why it's always by faith. It's nothing that we earn. It's only the work of God the Father through His Son on the cross that can bring about justification. He, we sang the song, Complete in Thee Tonight. Wow, what words! You know, that first part of the course is talking about our justification. And then sanctification salvation wrought and then finally someday glorified we too shall be there are three wonderful aspects of our salvation in christ i'm reminded of my father-in-law becky's dad telling me many years ago a story about the church there in michigan willis baptist church uh, where they started was uh, a little white building they've since sold it off and built a new building but um, it had previously been the Methodist Church. The Methodist Church sort of outgrew it, got another piece of property down the road, built another building, and it, this, this building sat empty until uh, the, the church that helped Becky's dad, sponsoring him as a church planner, um, helped him get it and so forth like that. But something that's always wise, and I was just reminded of this uh, recently, and that is they had a title search done. You understand what that means perhaps without going all the nuances of it but you know the fact that you own the land is a piece of paper you know you have a title well you you look back over that uh the history of that you don't do it but there's companies out there that do it they research this and then afterwards hopefully you get insurance that says hey just in case they miss something okay this will cover you you know probably 90 999 times out of a thousand it's never an issue, but it's just that one time that comes up. And in this case, it did come up because they did the title search and nothing was discovered when they were changing hands. The church was changing hands from the Methodist Church to Willis Baptist Church. But later, Willis Baptist Church got a bill from the utility company. I don't remember what it was, the electric company or water company or whatever. And... The, the previous church, the Methodist church, had never uh, paid uh, the assessment for, for that bill. And there was a charge that was sitting out there. But because they had had the title search done and had title insurance on it, uh, my father-in-law was able to go back and say, hey, that's not our problem, okay? And so, therefore, the title company said, yep, we will take care of it. You know, what a human or an earthly illustration of what Jesus does for us. You know, 
sometimes there can be things that come up that are quite worse than just a, uh, a hidden utility bill that nobody knew about. Uh, when we recently were involved in uh, John and Deborah buying a piece of property and reminded, yeah, you better get title insurance. And the lawyer was explaining that, you know, they knew of a situation where someone had, had bought a piece of property and, and chose not to do a title search on it because it was just a, you know, uh, you know uh, a foreclosed piece of property. You didn't pay much for it. You know, what can be wrong? People uh, moved in. He, he flipped the house or whatever, and people moved into it. And later they found out that the reason the man had left the house and, and it went into foreclosure is because the man had murdered his parents and buried their bodies under the foundation. And, of course, the whole thing went into litigation. The people uh, lost the house because they hadn't chose to get title insurance. That's a horrible story. You know what's worse? People that go through life thinking, yeah, I'll be okay. I'll figure out this whole eternal life thing. It, it, you know, God will be okay with me. What, what could possibly go wrong? I'll tell you what could possibly go wrong. Stand before the true judge of heaven that says, depart from me, I never knew you. And then there are those of us that they might look over at if it worked this way and said, what about them? <laughs> they're worse. They're sinners too. And if it's us that they're pointing at, we might say, yes, I don't deserve to be here. I am a sinner. I've transgressed God's law over and over and over again. But the only reason I can stand here and I can know with confidence that I have admission into this celestial city is because my account's been paid for by the Son of the great Judge, Jesus Christ. Justification is such a wonderful truth that we must never forget. Paul put it this way in Romans 5.1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace. We're not at war. There's harmony. How sad to consider that there will be those who will not accept the word of salvation, even though God is working on them. Some will in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto them. That's what verse 41 talks about there. Paul's statement there. What a sobering truth. I like what Paul says in Colossians 1, verse 26. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of his glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus is in you. It's, it's a mysterious thing to the Gentiles. They can't fully understand. But just realize that the Son of God isn't just near you, isn't just waiting for you down the road. He is in you. This is our hope. You know, there will be those who will welcome the word. Verse 42, we didn't read it. But it's not the Jewish people that had the law to their hand so long. But it is those Gentiles that besought that, hey, we want to hear more. Will you come back next Saturday and on the Sabbath will you tell us more? They were hungry. In verse 44, it tells us, And the next Sabbath day came almost what? The whole city. The whole city. Together. What did they want to hear? We want to hear the word of God. Sing it over again to me. Wonderful words of life. 
These were thirsty souls. They were a whole city of people, much like the woman of Cana there at the well, who ran into the city, told other thirsty people, you've got to come and meet this man who told me everything ever I did. Surely this is the Son of God. You know, what a joy it is to see people welcome the Word of God in their life. When you see someone that truly grasps, I am a sinner and I need this. It's such a blessing to see the redemptive work of God at work in people's lives. And it is a treasure to be involved in the process. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for the reminder to us of how welcome the Word of God is and salvation is in our lives. And Lord, may we rejoice in the anticipation of others that are also going to welcome the Word. We are told that the fields are white already into harvest. And so, Father, we anticipate with faith people that may be coming the week of the coffee meetings and that we are praying for and we are talking with. Lord, will you not work in their lives? Urge them. And, Lord, that may, we may be good ambassadors and faithful. May you till in their hearts, removing the stones and the layers of hardness so when the seed of God's Word drops in, that it will be received into good soil that only you can create. And may it bring forth much fruit. Lord, we're excited about that. We're excited when we read missionary letters and we hear of yet another individual that has come to Christ, being baptized, thrilled with their new life in Jesus Christ, and are out telling other people about it as well. Lord, we, we crave to see more. And Lord, may we be willing participants in the process. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.